0: The gospel, we have seen the gospel acted out for us in baptism, and and now we get to preach the gospel, hear the gospel spoken. I love that song, The Story of Redemption Written on His Hands. And as I'm singing that, I'm thinking, that's it. The the story of redemption written on the hands of Christ on the cross. And and so even as we're working our way verse by verse through the book of Exodus, uh, it's the story of redemption. It's weaved through every Every chapter, every verse, it's there. And uh, we're going to see it again this morning. I continue to be uh, amazed by God's uh, gospel focus through every verse of Scripture. Um, I'm not sure how many of you kids uh, enjoy thunderstorms. I love a good thunderstorm. But I know some people are kind of nervous of thunder. Does anyone get kind of scared when the thunder hits loud? Yeah, there's yeah some adults too. That's okay. We can be honest here. Um, It's scary. Now, what if that thunder and lightning wasn't out there, off in the distance somewhere? What if it was right up close? What if it was here? So close you could feel it shake your chest. So close the the ground trembled underneath you. And what if somehow that thunder and lightning began to speak to you? Now that's getting really scary. I'm not sure how many of the Israelites loved thunderstorms. How many of them maybe were a little bit scared of thunder on a normal day? But when God showed up in thunder and lightning, started talking to them out of the cloud, everyone was afraid. Children, moms, even dads were afraid. This morning is our last sermon in this series, Approaching the Unapproachable. And it's fitting, this last section, God again reminds Israel, I am unapproachable. I am not like you. I am holy, before he then begins to show them this gracious way that he's made for the impossible to happen, for them to approach him, for them to come to the holy God as a sinful people. It's absolutely unimaginable, and God accomplishes it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on you, um, Terry is going to grab some Bibles, and he'll be here ready to hand some out. Just put up your hand. We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Uh, I have nothing to say. Uh, I apologize for that. Uh, no, I don't, because uh, I have nothing value to say. It's God's Word that we want to hear from. So we want you to be able to see uh, this is God's Word. And, uh, and if you're looking down and you're like, John, it doesn't say that, then you just write off what I say and take God's Word for it. Um, but... Uh, my, my goal is only to say what God's word has already said. So um, let's, let's dig into his word together. We're in Exodus 20. We're starting in verse 18. So God has just finished handing down to them the Ten Commandments. All of Israel was gathered around Mount Sinai. God had warned them, don't touch the mountain or you will die. Don't, don't come up here. And, and Moses actually put these marker stones, these boundary markers around the mountain so the people knew how far to come and no further. And they gathered around and God spoke to them. He gave them his law, the Ten Commandments. How amazing would that have been? To stand there at the mountain, to hear the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet sound. And hearing the voice of God, for the first time, the words, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And on it went. Right after the 10th commandment is where we pick up the story this morning. Looking at first at verses 18 to 21. And I think the first thing we see here is this call to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Kids, you paying attention? You get that one? Don't get left behind that early. Let me read verses 18 to 21 for us. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, "Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin." The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So imagine this picture: Moses and the people. of are all gathered around the mountain. He's he's put these boundary markers up so that nobody gets too close. Moses is listening carefully to the, to the Ten Commandments as they're passed down and it, it finishes and Moses stops and looks around. He's alone. Where'd everyone go? Verse 18 says, they're, they're standing far off. How did they get there? They ran away. They bolted. The Lord began to speak and the people saw the, the lightning and the smoke and they heard the thunder and the trumpets and they were afraid, so afraid that they Trembled. Sometimes I tremble from too much coffee, but not often tremble from fear. They ran back. They're probably peering out from behind rocks and shrubs. Moses, is it it over yet? Is he gone? Is it safe to come out? They're terrified. Now, we have to realize the Lord could have displayed himself, he could have showed up any way he wanted. He could have come with a warm, gentle breeze and soft sunshine on their faces, right? He could have showed up with with daisies and rose petals falling and the sound of a harp. But he didn't. God showed himself in a way that is intentionally frightening. Sorry, kids, for a big word there, but I think it's the right word. He's intentionally frightening. So frightening that, that the people say, Moses... We don't want to hear from God anymore. We want to know what he has to say. We'll listen, but you go and hear from him and you bring the message to us. Lest we die. Isn't that overreacting a little bit? I mean, I know thunder, lightning, it's a little scary, but are they right to fear death? Like, aren't they being a little dramatic? No, no, they're not. Deuteronomy 5, Moses is retelling this same story, and he tells of the smoke and the fire and the lightning and the the giving of the Ten Commandments. And then chapter 5, verse 24, he reminds them, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and still live. They're, They're in awe and wonder. And notice that it wasn't the fire and the lightning that bothered them. It's the voice of God. He showed his glory and we lived. This is amazing. Speaking of the Ten Commandments, it was God showing his glory. He's showing his glory. I always find it funny. Um, And Jerry, I'm sure you can... uh, I'm sure you can relate to this. I've worked in the oil field on the service rigs. I've done construction and concrete. I'm, there's not much of human bad behavior and language that, that surprises me anymore. But I'll be standing around with a, a group of men chatting away, and eventually someone will ask, So, what do you do? And here it comes. Well, I'm a pastor. One guy starts kind of looking at his feet. Another guy leaves the circle. Um, The next guy is apologizing for his language. I'm so sorry. Um, What happened? Why? These men perceive that they are in the presence of someone more holy than them. Someone who's different. Now, they're wrong, mind you, if they think that I don't wrestle with the wickedness of my own heart and every sin that they do. But that's what they perceive, and it makes them uncomfortable. I don't want to be around something that is holier than me. That's what's happening here on on an infinitely grander scale. They've seen God. We looked last week, these last six commandments, they, they look so unimposing, so practical. It's just everyday life stuff, right? But we ought to come away from those commandments understanding who God is. God is revealing his glory. The God who commands, honor your father and mother, is the God who is over and above and behind every human authority and who is himself infinitely worthy of all honor and glory. The God who commands, do not murder, is the God who is the the giver of life. He holds life in his hands and he loves life. The God who commands, do not commit adultery, is the God who is perfectly faithful, keeping every single promise true to his word. The God who commands, do not steal, is the God who is lavishly generous. The God who commands, do not give false testimony, is the God who is the truth. The God who commands, do not covet, is the God who himself intends to fill to overflowing every good desire in our heart and will not share our heart with anything else. He is holy, He is glorious, and He demands our worship and our honor, all of it. And He's worthy of it. As we begin to see His law, not just a few kind of narrow moral commandments, this little checklist that we can work our way down, But as God displaying his glory, that changes everything. All of a sudden, we can't help, can't, can't help but see immediately how far short we fall, how unworthy we are to be in the presence of this God. We don't belong near him. He is different from us. He is holy. And so Israel says, we can't be here anymore, Moses. We will be consumed. We can't stand in the presence of this God. They know at this deep, undeniable level what Paul would later write in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of not just the law, but the glory of God. And instinctively, they understand the wages of sin is death. For a sinner to dare come into the presence of the holy God is is like a cotton ball thrown into the flame of a jet engine. It, It has no hope. I can't survive there. They fear God, they tremble, they run. So Moses says the strangest thing in response, look at verse 20. Moses says to them, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him might be before you that you may not sin. You see the problem here? Don't fear, God did this so that you will fear him what are you talking about, Moses? This is, is he crazy? Clearly there are two kinds of fear. There's a right way to fear the Lord and there's a wrong way to fear the Lord. Well, what's the wrong way? I think the wrong way is what Israel's doing. Moses says, don't fear in a kind of fear that causes you to run away. Running and hiding. Isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve did when they first sinned? They ran from God. They hid in the garden. They made fig leaf coverings trying to hide themselves from from one another and from the Lord. They're trying to cover their shame. We hide from God. I just don't want to talk about God. Don't don't talk to me about your religion. I'm an atheist. I'm an evolutionist. Uh, Don't talk to me about it. What's at the root of that? It's running from God. I don't want to think about it. I want to bury my head in the sand and ignore this whole idea of God because I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel accountable to a being greater than myself. I want to believe that I'm okay as I am. And so we we want to just cover our ears and close our eyes and hide in the corner. We run from God. And that kind of fear Leads to running is also mixed with hatred. Sometimes the hatred shows up without the running. That's where I lived uh, a chunk of my life, having grown up in the church, seeing the goodness of God, understanding his holy standard and seeing my sinfulness in perspective to that. And I tried, I tried to keep God's law. I tried to keep his 10 commandments to earn his favor. And the more I tried, the more I fell short and the more I hated God. I knew who he was. I'd heard the gospel a thousand times, but I hated him because I saw his glory in my sin. That's what happened with Jesus, right? John 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. They saw the perfection of Jesus. Even the Pharisees who spent their lives meticulously keeping the law saw a holiness that they could not match up with and they hated it, so they killed him. That's the wrong kind of fear of the Lord. But notice, notice Moses does not say, don't fear God, there's nothing to be afraid of. No, he, he says... God is testing you. And remember, God God doesn't test for the purpose of learning something. He knows. He knows past, present, future completely. He knows their hearts better than they do. Rather, he's testing them in the sense of proving. He's, He's putting them through an experience of these trials to make visible something that was previously hidden. And so he's testing them. He's putting them through this experience so that they will fear him. Properly. They'll fear him in a way that is purifying. Be afraid, but not in a way that leads you to run from God and to hate God, but a way that causes you to honor him so that you won't sin, he says. Think of my grandpa. We called him Papa. He was one of my my heroes. Uh, My kids are getting to know him now, which is just awesome for me. Um, He's an amazing man. Just Physically, so he doesn't know what a headache would feel like. He's never had one. Um, We've been out, we're out walking in uh, in in the eastern states, and there's oh, it's poison ivy, and he will take it off and rub it in his hands and rub it up his arms. Go, no, still doesn't bother me. Um, I've never seen him sick. It's just it's never happened. Um, When we were young, we have pictures of him walking through airports with me and my brother and my two cousins, one on his back and one on his shoulders and one on either arm, and he would go for hours. He was unstoppable. Uh, As teenagers, 16 and 17, um, I I can't imagine what was going through people's minds. West Edmonton Mall, he's walking into the wave pool, and my brother and I, holding nothing back, I promise you, tackle him from behind, he's like 60 plus, trying to hold him under the water, and, and whatever fears people had or thoughts of calling the cops would have just evaporated because he turned us inside out, had us in matching headlocks and dunking us, saying, say uncle, say uncle. He just, he was unbeatable. And we loved him. He was the greatest. He, he's the one that everyone wanted to be with. Um, but we feared him. I, I've never seen him angry. But, but I can think of a couple of times when his voice just dropped a tone. And he would say, that's enough. And all of the cousins are quiet. Nobody wants to know what would happen if Papa got angry. Nobody wants to know what Papa's discipline would look like. Because we feared him. But more than fear of what he would do, we feared breaking that relationship. We we feared disobeying him in a way that might come between us. Because we loved him. And we wanted to be near him. That's the kind of fear that Moses is talking about. It's It's not less than fear. But it's a fear mixed with love and respect and and honor and this this desire to draw near. If there's a a large, scary man walking down a dark alley, you want to be the guy holding his hand. You want to be the one with him, right? You want to be that guy's grandkid and have him on your side. We should understand that we are sinful and he is holy. Holy. And if we were to come as sinners, as our natural selves in his presence, we would be consumed. But we want to fear him, not in a way that makes us run from him or hate him, but a way that makes us run from sin because we're terrified of what that would do to our relationship with him. Seeing the glory of God, we should fear the Lord, fear him rightly. And that should put us in the place For point two, to hear the mediator. Hear the mediator. Look again at verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is an amazing moment in redemptive history. As the people cry out, "Um, you go speak to the Lord and tell us. So we see that we ought to fear the Lord, but then the rest of this passage, we see God's grace just immediately following. He doesn't destroy them. God provides for them in two remarkable ways. First, he provides a way for him to come to them and then a way for them to come to him. And this mediator is the way that he comes to them. Kids, anybody know what a mediator is? That's a tricky one. I'm putting mean words in your fill-in this time. I'm sorry. A mediator is someone who helps two people communicate without talking directly to one another. So Hope, if I were to tell you, can you tell Madeline that I love her? You would be the mediator, right? I would give you my word and you'd give it to Madeline. Madeline would get my message, but she wouldn't have spoken directly to me. This is exactly what they asked for. Don't let the Lord speak directly to us anymore. We're scared we'll die. Moses, you speak to him in our place, and you just you let us know what, what he says. And Moses becomes the first in a, in a long line of prophets. A prophet is a person that God chose to hear directly from himself and relay that message to his people. This is a great gift of grace from God. They deserve death. They deserve God's wrath, and they know it. They see it now clearer than ever. He's the God who was worthy of all honor, and they have not given him that. In fact, ever since he rescued them out of Egypt, at every turn, they have, they have dishonored him, they have grumbled and complained against him. He would have been right. He would have been good and glorious to destroy them. He could have shown his goodness that way and wiping out a wicked people. And the angels would have said, Well done, God, you are honorable, you are glorious. He would have also simply been right to withdraw. You can't handle my glory. You can't take it. And you have no right to see it. So I'm just going to hold it back and and just leave us to live our our simple, hopeless little lives here in in full-on nihilism and, and die and then face God's judgment. He could have done that. But God made a way to continue to show His glory to His people. He continues to reveal himself to them, but now through a mediator, through Moses. And this is an amazing gift. This is God being gracious and kind, and yet there's a problem. Actually, there are a couple of problems. The first problem is is a problem with every mediator, and it's this. Something's always lost in translation, right? It's just not as good. Kids, how many of you guys have grandparents that live far away? Well, the Saves do. They come all the way from Montreal. Um, my, my kids' grandparents are over in Vancouver Island. We're going we're to go visit them. Why? What do we need to visit for? We have telephones. We have FaceTime. I mean, we can video chat with them. We have these great mediators that we can use. Is it the same? No. It's the first thing grandma's going to do when, when she sees Elijah. She's going to give him a big hug and say, I missed you. Well, What do you mean you missed him? You saw him on, 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 you know, on Skype. It's not the same. Something is lacking with the mediator. It's not the same as actually being together, actually seeing God, knowing God, experiencing him. The second problem is this mediator is temporary. Moses isn't going to live forever. He's going to die. What will future generations do? What will they have once Moses is gone and the more we look at the idea of Moses as a mediator, the more it becomes evident. This is good, and it is God's gift of grace, but it's not perfect. It falls short. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a duct tape fix. That's not by accident. That's not because God could not have done better. But God is working out this story of redemption step by step. He's baked this in from the beginning that Moses would be an imperfect mediator. Moses would fall short in these key ways to draw their eyes forward, to know there's something more coming. There's a greater mediator to come. He's building on that promise from Genesis 3.15. The the serpent crusher is coming. The one who will rescue from sin and death is, is coming. Is it Moses? Not quite. No. He gives us an idea, but he falls short, and so they're left longing. God makes this so clear, the book of Deuteronomy. I'm not sure if you know the, the history, of how this plays out. Um, the book of Exodus that we're working through is written by Moses, probably written right at Mount Sinai. As these things happen, Moses would go back to his, his tent and, and write down, here's, here's what happened today, here's what God did, here's what the people said, and he's, he's keeping record of all of this. But then they spend... 40 years wandering in the wilderness, right? They, they travel over to the promised land and they send in the spies. And what happens? Ten were good and two were... No, ten were bad and two were good. Um, and, 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 and God says, because you didn't believe me, because you didn't trust me to go into the promised land, this whole generation is going to die. They go back to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they come back to the promised land as a whole new people. Everyone who was an adult at Mount Sinai, except for for Caleb and Joshua and Moses, everyone else is gone. And so Deuteronomy is Moses camped, looking into the promised land. Lord has told him, he knows he's going to die before he goes in. So that's coming soon, any day now. And he's writing Deuteronomy as the law again. Let me summarize this again to give it to the people to take with, right? Remember God's law as you go into the promised land. Remember what God has done. And, and as he's writing that, Deuteronomy 18, 15, to this new generation, he, he makes this promise from God. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So there's another prophet coming. There's another one that will be like Moses. And then the last chapter of Deuteronomy is, is a bit of a mystery because it, it speaks of Moses' death. So it's our best guess that Moses didn't write it. Maybe Joshua, once they've kind of gone into the promised land, kind of sums it up and, and caps it off. But these are the last words of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verses 10 and 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, to whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty powers and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So the people of God move into the promised land with a sense of loss and longing. A prophet is gone. No one like him has come. The promise was made and it, and it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And over the next 1400 years, prophets come and Prophets go. Godly men who who spoke from God, Samuel, Nathan, Joel, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, all the way down to Malachi. And they spoke from God. They spoke authoritatively. They wrote books that, that we read as God's word today, but none of them were a prophet like Moses. None of them spoke with God as a man spoke with his friend. Until one day, there came one from among his brothers went up onto a mountain in Israel. Matthew 17 tells us he was transfigured before them. He was transformed. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, the two greatest prophets. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents. One for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Sound familiar? And a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Deuteronomy 18 A prophet will come from among your brothers, one like Moses. Listen to him. Matthew 17 This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is it. Kids, can you fill in the next blank on your own? Jesus is the true and better mediator. He's it. He's the one that reveals God the way no one else could because He is God. And so Hebrews 1 begins this way. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Listen to this. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He's the perfect mediator. He displays God in a way that nobody else could fully and completely. And He'll never die. He'll never need to be replaced. So listen to him. Listen to him. If you fear the Lord, hear the mediator. Pay attention to what Jesus says. Jesus reveals God to us. He shows us who God is. And and not in a a secondary way. He's, He's a mediator and yet he is God himself. He's the very radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow, that's unbelievable. How do we listen to him today? Can't go sit at Jesus' feet today, can we? Well, we can get pretty close through his word. We listen to him through his word. Right here, this book, Open on your lap. This is it. That's why we want you to have it open on your lap as we gather together. And if you don't have one of these at home, you don't have one, you can easily read. Take that one. We want you to have it. We're thrilled when we have to restock Bibles around here. But in this book is encapsulated who Jesus is and what he said recorded for us so that you can know him. some ways, better than if Jesus was still on earth. Imagine the crowds and the lineups. Can you imagine the fake news and the, and the Twitter posts and trying to guess what, what he really said and what he didn't? We have it right here, black and white. You can go back. It's accessible to all of us. It's right here. Read it. Read it daily. When you read it, don't just read it for information. This is not, this is not a textbook on Jesus it is the living word of God. Read it to see and to know Jesus, to behold the glory of God in him. And, and that's, just, that's not just a New Testament statement. That's the whole Bible. It's about him. Realize this is a precious, precious gift. First and foremost, obviously, in, in Jesus coming as that great prophet, the great revelation of who God is. And secondarily, in His Word, this revelation written down for us to have in our hands, to be able to to read and meditate on and memorize. What a gift. So fear the Lord and hear the mediator, but there's still a problem. We have God's glory revealed to us, but how do we approach Him? How do we respond? Because that glory revealed even in Jesus is still like a spotlight showing how far short we fall. How we have no business approaching God. How far we've truly rebelled from His goodness. And therefore how impossible it is for us to draw near to Him and not die, not be consumed. So it's astoundingly gracious The next thing the Lord gives is this instruction on an altar. Fear the Lord, hear the mediator, draw near by the altar. Look at verses 22 to 26. Let me read them for us. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness not be exposed on it. So the first thing God does is restates the second command, don't make an idol. Not of silver or gold, I think the implication is, or anything else. Why? Because that's not how you'll be with me. That's not how you approach me. It doesn't doesn't work like that. Instead, verse 24 says, You shall make an altar of earth. What a contrast. Not Not a gold and silver statue, but a pile of dirt is how you'll come to me. And on that altar, you'll make your sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings, sheep and oxen. The Lord made a way for them to draw near to him, but not without death. Not without death. From the beginning, the Lord was clear. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. When you disobey me, you will bring death upon yourself. The penalty for sin is death. And and Hebrews 9.22 summarizes it simply, without the shedding of blood, that's death, there is no forgiveness of sin. So this is gruesome. This is messy. To take an animal fighting and bawling and to slit its throat and get blood everywhere to burn it. This is how we approach God. He made a way that we could approach God by the death of something else, that the animal would die in the place of the person. Now, there are a couple of particulars about this altar that we don't want to miss. Firstly, firstly, The altar was not to be fancy. Verse 24, it says it was to be made out of earth, made out of dirt. Verse 25, um, stones are also an option, but if you make it out of stones, don't carve them. Don't touch them with any tool. there to be natural stones just piled up. So it's not to be fancy, and then the altar is not to be raised. It's not to be high up. Verse 26, you shall not go up to it by any steps. That was typical worship of the day. Um, They would carve these ornate, fancy altars that were put up on high hills, and they would have large stairs up to them. And the Lord said, that's not the way it's going to be between us. Why? Why do these things matter? Well, some... Debate over what it means that their nakedness would be exposed. Um, some would answer very practically. One of the commentaries I looked at offered this suggestion. Um, going upstairs in a day when robes were common and underwear was not has some complications. So don't, don't do that. It's not a good idea. I think there's something more to it than that, significantly. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the very next words, Genesis 3-7... Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were what? Naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their sin brought with it into the world for the first time, shame. Ironically, it was their pride that led to their shame. And their shame was apparent in that now they realized they were were naked. For the first time, they had the desire to cover themselves, to withdraw, to put boundaries and barriers between them and one another and between them and God. Shame. I don't think in this world, I don't think we go a day without feeling shame at some level. And God says, if they were to approach him by an altar made with carved stones or raised up on the stairs, their their nakedness would be exposed again. Their shame would be exposed. Why? Because their pride would come up again. God would not accept a sacrifice mingled with pride. What would happen if they they began to carve their altars and make them beautiful, shape them and decorate them? They would begin to come proud of their altar. My altar's better than His altar. God, look at my altar. Isn't this great? They would no longer be hoping in the sacrifice, but more and more that God would be pleased with their skill and their effort and their work. Same thing with the steps. If they got caught up in making their altars taller and and higher and raising them up so that they would climb up many stairs to get closer to God, they would begin to imagine that that it was not God who came down to them but they who had climbed up to God look what i've done to get to god they would make they would begin to take their eyes off of the sacrifice begin to trust in what they had done rather than what god had done god would not have it they were to make their sacrifice on the altar made of dirt in this pile of stones can you imagine how the cultures around them would have mocked them. Look at your pathetic altar. Why would your God listen to you? Do you put no effort into this? Look at you, you're down in the dirt worshiping your God. Simple, humble, ground level because it wasn't about what they would do to approach God. It was about what God had done to bring them to himself. What an amazing God. And of course, you've already put two and two together. Like Moses was never meant to be this permanent mediator, but was pointing them forward to see Jesus. So Jesus is this true and better altar. He's the sacrifice that actually reconciles us to God. Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Doesn't happen, doesn't work was never meant to do that. Down in uh, verses 11 and 12 in Hebrews uh, 10, it says, And every priest stands daily, get that, stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So they're busy, constantly standing, working, offering these sacrifices day after day, year after year. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. Accomplished. Finished. So those who made animal sacrifices under the Old Covenant, were they not forgiven? Because they they sacrificed animals that would never take away this sin? No, they were forgiven. Just not by the death of the animal. That wasn't what accomplished it. They were never saved by those sacrifices, but those sacrifices were a visible practice of obedience, trusting that God would one day provide, that he would do himself what the animal sacrifice could never accomplish. And so in a sense, they too were saved by faith in Jesus, just looking forward to what they didn't fully understand and God himself would fulfill the the longing, the, the promise wrapped up in this sacrifice as he would come down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. And on that cross, he himself would be the perfect sacrifice, humbled and humiliated, coming down to us. And the wrath of God that we deserve poured out on him. He took away sin. So that we as sinners could draw near to God and not be consumed. And you'd think that looking at this amazing sacrifice. Now on the other side of the cross we see the fulfillment of God's plan once for all. That we would be cured of of ornately carved altars and elevated steps. But we're not. We're not. How often we have this idea that we need to fix ourselves up before we come to God. I want to work on my morality. I need to try to live a, a better life. I got to stop swearing and stop lusting and stop drinking. I got to start going to church more and then God will accept me, right? I can close the gap between me and God. I need to add something to the sacrifice of Jesus. God, do you see my altar that I've built? But listen carefully, God will not accept a sacrifice mixed with pride. That's not how we approach God. To accept the sacrifice of Jesus is deliberately humiliating. It's humbling. We put down every hope we ever had in our own efforts. Nothing I've done has been of value. Any confidence that we've placed in our own morality, our own works, our own goodness, it means nothing. Isaiah 64 says, we all have become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, like filthy rags. Even our best efforts on our best day is so tainted by sin and mixed with impure motives that, that it's like bringing God a bunch of dirty oil rags and saying, here God, is this good enough? Will this help? I can help clean up the mess. This is the kid that, that comes in on a mom's white carpet just Covered and dripping in mud, and and he says, Oh, I'll clean up those footprints. And he gets down on his hands and knees and starts smearing it around. No, it's of no value. It only uncovers our nakedness, it only displays our shame all the more. So often, I talk with people and they say, I'll trust Jesus, I, I want to follow him they don't quite say it this way, but what they eventually say is, as long as I have a part to play, as long as I can bring something to the table, as long as I can keep some portion of my pride, I'll let Jesus finish up. Simply put, they're unwilling to lay down their pride. To come to God on his terms at a simple altar in the dirt and give themselves to him. In a way that he alone gets the glory. And that's precisely the design. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works. Why? So that no one may boast. No one will get to heaven and say, You're welcome, God. No one will get to heaven and say, Look at what I did. We Draw near to God at his altar coming in humility bringing nothing of our own to the table not not climbing up to him in any way but with empty hands trusting not one iota in anything we've done but looking only to the sacrifice of jesus christ on our behalf accepting his grace because god opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble think about the implications of that He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, those he saves, he sanctifies, and our our transformed lives and good deeds ought to flow out of that as these loving acts of gratitude and growth as the Holy Spirit is at work in us, but that is not the grounds of our salvation. So, draw near to him. He invites you. In fact, he commands you come. No one is too dirty. No one is too weak and lowly to come to this altar in the dirt. The only thing that excludes us is our pride. Our hard hearts. So come to Him empty-handed and humble. Praising Him because He made a way.